Galatians 5 and 6, we're continuing in our series, How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense. We're going to finish chapter 5 and dip uh, quite a ways into chapter 6. The title of this message is Gospel-Oriented Spirituality. Gospel-Oriented Spirituality. Let's read the last couple verses of uh, chapter 5, and we'll keep reading for a bit. Start reading together. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. We'll start in verse 25 of Galatians 5. It says, Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Dear brothers and sisters, if any believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, it's often translated spiritual in other translations. You who are spiritual should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Lord, we thank you for that word to us. And I, I specifically... Thank you for that word to me at this moment. And Lord, I, I just got to confess before my brothers and sisters, I, I wish I was listening to this sermon and not preaching. I, I need to hear these things. And so Holy Spirit, I'll trust you to preach and minister to my soul as I have the honor and privilege and responsibility of preaching to my beloved brothers and sisters. We ask together that by your spirit, you would anoint me to teach and preach in a way that is consistent with your word and consonant with your heart and your will and works toward the furtherance of your purposes and the glory of your name. And Lord, we say together that we don't want to go through the motions of Christianity or church. We want to be fiery, vibrant, spirit-filled, for real, transformed Christians. So do that work in us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we addressed that very important topic from the text about that battle that rages within each one of us, within every Christian man, woman, or child, the battle between the old nature that wants to satisfy the sinful desires of the flesh and the new nature that works in partnership with the Spirit of God and wants to do right things. We talked about that battle and how it's waging in us. And we discovered from the text how to get the victory in that battle. We get the victory by crucifying the flesh, right? And by walking in the spirit. Crucifying the flesh and walking in the spirit. And now in our text today, we're going to see what it actually looks like to walk in the spirit. What are the practical implications and outflow of being led by the spirit, guided by the spirit, living in the spirit? And... What does it mean to be spiritual? Paul used that phrase, you're godly or spiritual in our text. And, and that's an important question. Well, what does it mean when we say to be spiritual? Because that sounds different in every set of ears. You know what I mean? You talk to a lot of people on the coastline here, and it, it, for some people it means like you're out surfing and the dolphins swim by. You know what I mean? I'm a surfer, so I see people sometimes when the dolphins come by, they're just like, oh, it's just the ultimate spiritual experience for them. Others, you know, it's like burning sage and smoking weed. That can be spiritual. You know, for Christians, it, it means different things. Is it, is, is it a, a, a mystical experience? Is, is it the miraculous? What does it mean to be spiritual? And 
the church in trying to discover that and, and trying to be spiritual has done different things throughout history. And there's one guy in particular that it might behoove us to look at, and his name was Simeon the Stylite. Uh, stylite meaning a pillar. It comes from the Greek word for pillar, stylos. So Simeon was into pillars, and, and here's what he did. Uh, in the early 5th century, so around 420 or so, he, he, was, he was one of the first Christian hermits, okay? He's one of the first so-called uh, desert fathers. So the year was 423 AD, and on the edge of the Syrian desert, he, he built a pillar, okay? Built a pillar there and climbed up it. We have a picture of him on the pillar. I don't know how we got a photo from 423, but <laughs> we do things here at Reality. We somehow got a photo probably an iPhone back in the day of Simeon up there. Simeon, okay, this, this monastic guy wanting to live a spiritual life, figured that the, the best way to get close to God would, would be to, to get out there, to get isolated and get as far away from the world and, and the people as he possibly could. And so he crawled up in this pillar that he built and he spent 37 years up there until his death. That is not what it means to be spiritual. <laughs> In fact, I would say that's an utter failure to practice Christianity. We got to realize that when the New Testament addresses life in the spirit, walking in the spirit, being spiritual, so to speak, it is primarily in the context of relationships. We can take the famous passage from Ephesians 5, verse 18, where we're told to be continually being filled with the Spirit. And then the practical implications of that, we're told, are that we're to speak to one another in the church in a way that builds each other up and glorifies God. And then we're to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So we're to speak rightly and well to one another about God, and we're to be submitted to each other in the reverence of Christ. That that's gnarly relational stuff, like being submitted to one another. That, that gets to the core issues of, of self, of self-will, of selfishness, of my goals, my plans, my dreams, and, and, and surrendering those, submitting those for the betterment and the preference of others. I mean, that's, that's heavy relational ground, being submitted to one another. That's said to be the outflow, the relational, practical outflow of being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Even the list that we looked at last week of the, of the deeds of the flesh and the sins of the flesh, most of those there are fundamentally relational failures. We could revisit that list in verse 20 of chapter 5. We pick it up with hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy. These are all relational failures that are contrary to what it looks like as a Christian man or woman to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, be guided by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. So if we look at the New Testament, and this idea of life in the Spirit, we discover that what the Holy Spirit primarily leads us into and what it essentially means to be spiritual is to have relational wholeness and goodness, is to have fruitful relationships. So much so that I would say the primary evidence of someone who is walking in the Spirit is fruitful relationships. 
relational wholeness, as opposed to a, a private mystical experience or uh, practicing the Christian disciplines or something that is only God-directed. Life in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being in the Spirit means fruitful human relationships. And this makes sense because don't you think that relationships are the hardest thing in the world? I mean, th that's what Simeon thought. That's why he said, I'm, I'm going to build these pillars and get away from all these stinking people. Like if I could just get away from the people and be up off the ground a little bit, then I'll be so spiritual. I feel that way all the time. Like if I didn't have to deal with you all, I'd be so close to Jesus, so spiritual. If I didn't have people in my life. That's, that's not what spiritual means. Relationships, though, are, are really, really difficult. Jesus is easy to love, people not so much. And good relationships are, are the most life-giving thing in the world. They really are. Bad relationships are the most destructive thing in the world. And God cares immensely about our relationships. God himself is a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created us to live in relationship, first with him and then with others. So he is immensely concerned with our relationships. And so because they're so difficult, he's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his Holy Spirit to enable right relationships among us. And so we see that in the summation of the great and famous passage that we looked at last week of living by the Spirit's power, we have those two final verses that we just read. Verse 25, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Now, as we read that last verse about being conceited and provoking one another and being jealous one of one another, this starts to become clear. That our relationships with others are largely determined by our view of ourselves, okay? Our, our relationships with others, how we relate with other people, is largely determined by our view of ourselves. These things here, conceitedness, provoking one another and jealousy are the sort of things that happen in the Christian community when we're functioning according to that false dichotomy of good Christian, bad Christian that we've been talking about for the last few months. Failing to ground our identity, our perception of self, our security and our well-being in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. The fact that even though we're really, really bad, we are really, really loved by God and through the cross we're accepted by God and approved of by God and adopted by God and adored by God. When we fail to locate all of our identity and self-perception in that truth, then we start to function according to this dichotomy of good Christian and bad Christian. Okay, so I'm a Christian, I, I want to be a good one. I'm a good one because I'm good at keeping the rules. I'm good, you're bad. And, and, we, and we create this, this bifurcation within the community. Or on the other side, gosh, I'm not doing very good at the rules. I, I must be a bad Christian and those people are good. So then we, we start to view ourselves falsely as good or bad. Now this gets at the idea of being conceited. Okay, the idea of being conceited is we become this way because we're convinced not only that our performance is better than others, but more importantly, that our performance makes us better than others. We're conceited 
Not only because we believe our performance is better, but we believe that our performance makes us better than other people. It's a failure to perceive ourselves rightly in view of the gospel, which on the front end says you're more wicked than you ever dared imagine. It's a failure to think deeply upon and appropriate that gospel truth to our hearts, minds, and souls. Now, the Greek adjective that's used here for the word conceited denotes this. It's, it's describing the person who has a false view of him or herself, okay? A person that has a false view of his or herself. And, and it, it could be either way. It could be they've got an inflated view of self or deflated view of self. Inflated view of self. I'm awesome. I'm a good Christian. I'm performing well. False view. Deflated view of self. Gosh, I'm a, I'm a bad Christian. I'm not, I'm not performing well. I'm, I'm not making the cut. And when we function now to a false, according to a false view of self, either inflated or deflated, what we end up doing within, within the Christian community is either provoking one another or being jealous of one another. Now, what does it mean to provoke someone else? It means to challenge somebody to a contest. And I don't mean an innocuous fun contest like surfing or football or something like that. Those are great things, and I'll kick your butt any day. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this. When we believe ourselves to be better and we sense the need to prove it, when we're so convinced of our goodness and our betterness, if you will, our superiority, that we must demonstrate it to the rest of the community. Here's why this happens. Because people who are functioning to the false, according to the false dichotomy of good Christian, bad Christian, because they failed to root their identity in the truth of the gospel, always insist on being recognized. I'm doing well. Recognize it. The flesh always wants to be acknowledged. And the person who doesn't ground all of their identity and sense of well-being and satisfy the love issues and the love of Christ, what happens is there's this intense need to validate themselves as good. And so what they do is they provoke or they challenge others. Now, we, we would never say, I challenge you to a contest of being a good Christian, <laughs> right? That would be stupid. We, we're smarter than saying that. But, but we do it all the time by displaying our good behavior, by displaying our good works, by being the first one at the prayer meeting, by being the one who lingers at the altar, by being the usher that everybody sees. And in all these different ways, we're subtly provoking one another to a challenge. Look at me, I'm a, I'm a good Christian doing good things. Now, on the other hand, Failing to ground our identity in the gospel that says, the part of the gospel that says we're accepted and adored even though we're bad, when we fail to ground our identity there and get our sense of security there, then we succumb to feelings of defeat, despair, inadequacy, unworthiness, and, and the sense of not measuring up. And, and so for many of us, it's, it's not that we feel better than, we actually feel less than. We, we identify with a crowd that say, gosh, I'm, I'm a bad Christian. I'm, I'm not doing well. And the way that we begin to function relationally from that false perception of self is we become jealous of others. And the idea of jealousy is we become this way, not only when we are convinced that we're performing worse than others, but when we're convinced that our poor performance makes us worse than others. 
We not only think we're performing worse, but we think we are worse because of our poor performance. And so we become jealous and we start relating from a place of jealousy. We start functioning in life and relationships from this false view of self that I'm not good enough. And that drives us in all sorts of ways. As I've been meditating on this, I started to realize in how many areas of my life I'm driven by jealousy. That's, that's the motivation that begins to shape what I do and how I relate to people. Even, even in my recreation, I'm driven by jealousy. Like, he surfs better than me, so I, 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 gotta, I gotta get a one-up on her. She surfs better than me. Thank you, Lakey. She surfs better than me, and I, you know what I mean? Even in my recreation, I'm, I'm driven by this jealousy, or even in my style, like, gosh, he looks good. He has a different haircut. I'm gonna change my hair. I'm gonna shave my beard. I'm gonna put collared shirts on because I'm jealous of how good they look, and I wanna look better. In all sorts of different ways, I, I find myself functioning, even in ministry, you know, I have these friends, I'm like, gosh, they got a book deal and they're publishing books. Maybe I should have a book deal and publish books or th- their church is bigger than my church. Maybe we should do something to make our church bigger. Their car is better than my car. Their house is nicer than my house. And I find myself almost unceasingly functioning from a place of jealousy. That's a fundamental failure to find my identity and security in the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done for me and the love of God I've experienced because of it. And what that does is create relational brokenness. I'm I'm now dealing with other people from a false view of self, either an inflated one, so I'm provoking, or a deflated one, so I'm jealous now. And you see, what gospel-oriented spirituality does is it frees us from the opinions of people. Thank you, Jesus. It it frees us from the need of being approved by other people. Galatians 6, 4, and 5 gets at this, where it says, pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. Listen, we live in a culture that is almost totally driven by comparison. That's like what we do. That's, that's how our media functions. That's why we buy what we buy, wear what we wear, and do what we do. Comparison and, and the need to measure up and, and gospel-oriented spirituality frees us from that because we find everything that we need in the person of Christ and a love affair with God. And so we don't, we don't care about what they think anymore. We're not driven by their approval anymore and whether or not they think they're better or worse. So these things of conceit, provoking others, and jealousy are conduct determined by false views of self, non-gospel views of self, where we become motivated by these things rather than by the love of God for us and the love of God for others and the unity that the gospel creates among us. We become motivated by feelings of superiority or inferiority. And this is life in the flesh. That's what it means to live life in the flesh, is to function from that place. But when we walk in the Spirit, things start to look differently. When we walk in the Spirit, we find that we're continually wanting to subdue conceit. 
We're wanting to, to subdue it, a, a false view of self, whether it's inflated or deflated. When I'm thinking too well of myself, I'm reminded of the gospel truth that I'm more wicked than I ever dared imagine. When I'm thinking too poorly of myself, I, I remind myself that, that I am more loved than I could possibly ever imagine. And, and so life in the Spirit is always, by the power of the Spirit, subduing conceit and false views of self. We're, we're, we're looking at ourselves through a gospel lens. And then we find ourselves promoting others instead of provoking others. And this is profound, because few of us seldom, if ever, do this. Promote others simply for their well-being. Work toward their benefit, their betterment. We seldom ever do this. We'll do this if there's something in it for us. Like, I'm going to get a cut. Like, I'm functioning like an agent for you, right? Like, I'm going to get some sort of cut. Okay, I'll make sure that you get what you want. Or I'm going to get some recognition. Or I'm even going to have you think better of me because I helped you. And now in some way in my mind, you kind of owe me or I'm awesome. We very... <clears throat> oh, is it only me? I'm the only one that... Okay. We very seldom look to promote others for their betterment, helping them, addressing their needs to the exclusion of us, even to our own cost or detriment. But, but gospel-oriented spirituality, life in the spirit, we start wanting to promote others instead of provoke others. And then <clears throat> for those who clearly appear to be doing well, instead of being jealous, we become fans. We rejoice in their lives and in Christ in them. We're able to actually celebrate who they are and what God's doing in them. We value that rather than just be jealous of that. And then I find my attitude when I'm walking in the Spirit begin to change from I'm better than you and I'll prove it or you're better than me and I resent it to now becoming I'm unworthy like you and yet precious to God, as are you. And that begins to create and cultivate relational wholeness. So gospel-oriented spirituality frees us, right, from false views of self, which frees us from the need of the approval of others, which frees us from others in a certain way, but, but it will simultaneously also indebt us to other people. And this is what we see in verse 1 of chapter 6 where it says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, spiritual in most translations, you who are spiritual should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And, and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Now, here we have a ray of hope. Here, here we begin to see what the Christian community might look like if we freed ourselves from that false dichotomy of good Christian, bad Christian, from performance and comparison orientation. If that were done away with, then we would have relationships where we're humbly and gently keeping each other on the right path. Humbly and gently helping those who are not doing well. It says there that we're to help those who are overcome by some sin or as the New American Standard says, caught up in a trespass. Now, now here's the idea of that. Someone who's overcome by sin or caught up in a trespass. We're not talking about uh, our Christian brother or sister who, who sins once and we see him sin and we caught him in the act and we're like, ah, I got you. We're not, being, we're not talking about that kind of person. We all know that kind of person. We wish they got raptured yesterday. 
but they didn't, darn it. <laughs> but we're, that, that, that's not the call to action here. The call to action is not to be sin sniffers waiting for someone to screw up and then pouncing on them. Sin sniffers, you like that, huh? <laughs> that, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. Nor are we talking about the well-meaning Christian brother or sister who has some serious sin issues, but is aware of them and is working on them with Christ. Right? That would be all of us. We're not talking about that person who knows, gosh, I've got this area of my life is really messed up. I'm, I'm aware of this. and I'm, I'm walking in the grace of God and I'm working on this with Jesus. We're not talking about that. Here's a person that we're supposed to gently and humbly get back on track. It's a man or woman who has this repeated behavior in their lives, a sinful behavior that they are almost totally unaware of. In other words, a blind spot. We all have blind spots. We all have blind spots that that we don't see, hence the word blind, right? (laughs) That, That we don't see, but are glaringly obvious to others. We all have these. And so when we spot these in Christian brothers and sisters, the call to action here is a willingness to help get that person back on track. In the blind spot, in other words, where where we gently go to them and say, hey, listen, do you realize that when when somebody does this to you that you react in that way of of self-defense or or anger or whatever it is? Or or do you realize that when somebody brings up his name, you, you spew venom? Those little, you think that's funny? (laughs) You guys are so spunky. (laughs) Gently and humbly kind of pointing out those blind spots. Now, there's a way that this is to be done, and there's a goal which we are to have, okay? We're to help that person back onto the right path, it says here in the New Living Translation. That's a, a long sort of translation of a single word in the Greek, which is the idea of restore, Okay, it says in the New American Standard, we're, we're to seek to restore that person. Now, what does it mean to restore? It means to put something back in the right condition. Something was once in its right condition. Something has gone wrong. It's now broken or, or it's askew. And we're seeking to restore, put it back in its right condition. That Greek word was, of course, used lots of ways in the ancient Greek culture. But one of the ways it was employed was by physicians who were going to set a broken bone. Somebody had a broken bone, and the job of the physician was to set the bone back in place and restore then, right? The the bone was to be restored so that it could continue to grow and there could be health and normalness and wholeness, so on and so forth. That idea of a physician restoring a broken bone is perhaps helpful to us because when when the physician sees the broken bone, his or her goal is always to heal, to cure, to set right, to get it straight. It is never to punish or or to ridicule or to make feel bad. You see, everyone has different degrees and places of brokenness in their lives, broken bones, if you will. And what we desperately need is a caring Christian community that could say in humility and gentleness, my dear brother or sister, Here's a blind spot in your life. Here's, here's some brokenness. Let's, let's, let, let, let's reset this bone. The goal is always restoring, not penalty, not punishment, but working toward healing. And I, I would just issue the call and say that this is desperately needed in our Christian community, a, a willingness to do this. I, can you imagine 
somebody that sees the broken bone is just like, oh, glad it's not me. Right? That, that, if we saw a doctor who, who saw a broken bone just said, ah, yeah, bummer. <laughs> but our, our blind spots are glaringly obvious to one another. And what we often do is, ah, oh, yeah, whew, glad I'm not a sinner like you. The call here is a, a willingness to restore, a willingness to cure, a willingness to be part of the healing. And, and it's to be done in a spirit of gentleness. Martin Luther, speaking about this, said, here's a way that you restore a fallen brother. You run to him and reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. You see how tender and caring this is? This is we're, we're to do it humbly. Being careful not to fall into the same temptation. Now, what that would say to me is this. We only ever point out others' blind spots if, here's a prerequisite, we, 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 we only do this if we have a profound sense, clear knowledge that we ourselves have blind spots that we ourselves have sin issues that we're not quite aware of but are glaringly obvious to other people. When we have that clear knowledge and the accompanying, accompanying attitude that we ourselves have multitudinous blind spots, only then do we go into this because this is going to it humbly, looking to, to yourself too, lest you fall into the same thing. The attitude needs to be, hey dude, this thing in your life is jacked up. But by the grace of God, I, I'd be doing the same thing. I'm sure I'm doing lots of things. But let's work toward restoring and resetting. Man, if we don't do this, if you go to countries where there's not proper medical care, you can see men and women who have broken bones that were never reset, never restored. And now there's a limp for life. There's a disability for life. Some of us have been limping for too long. We need to be agents of healing in one another's lives. But only do it when we have the profound sense, knowledge, and accompanying feeling or attitude that we ourselves have blind spots. Being careful then not to fall into the same temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, if you think you're standing strong, be careful lest you fall. Anytime you think like, dude, I got this. Doing good, got it together, got this Christian thing nailed, be careful lest you fall. You see, when we're dealing with someone else's blind spots, someone caught in sin, we must always remember the first part of the gospel for ourselves, which says you are exceedingly wicked. We've got to keep that before ourselves. And then we've got to keep the second part of the gospel in mind for them. They are amazingly loved and cherished as beloved and loving children of God. See, we, we, we've got to strike that balance. And, and this work of doing this, this is... This is sensitive ground. This work of doing this, of gently and humbly setting brothers and sisters back on the right track, has to be left to those in the community of faith who are walking in the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit functioning in their lives. Because nobody else has a character to do this. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And those things are required to gently and humbly deal with one another's blind spots. Th that is the person, right, who's walking in the Spirit and has the fruit of the Spirit functioning in their lives about whom Paul would say, you're spiritual, you do this. 
Those who are godly, those who are spiritual, restore those who are caught up in a sin. Everybody else, don't touch it. You're not, you're not ready for that. You're, by this definition, perhaps ungodly, unspiritual. You're the man or woman who is self-confident, judgmental, and harsh and relishes a rebuke. You spot the sins of others well enough. No problem spotting others' blind spots, but you are not equipped to deal with it. You need to hear verse 3. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. There's a gospel truth. You're not that important. You see, what the gospel and the spirit do together, and we talked about last week that we need both the gospel and the spirit for a complete and fruitful Christian experience. What the gospel and the spirit do together is work in our lives so we might have a right view of self. It's not overinflated, it's not underinflated, but a right view of ourselves, which will always turn toward a desire to serve others because we see them as more important. And that's the idea that we see in verse two. Verse two says, share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. Okay, what does this mean? Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. What, what is the law of Christ? Because we've just been told all through the book of Galatians that we don't have to obey the law of Moses anymore. And suddenly we're told, but obey the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? How do we understand that? Well, it is perhaps most simply and best understood for our purposes is this. The law of Christ is that truth and that fact that Christ bared the burden of our sins on the cross. The law of Christ is this willingness to bear the burden, to even be crushed under the weight of the plight of others. We read about Christ in Isaiah 53. It says, it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. See, the law of Christ is that willingness to be weighed down, even crushed for the sake of others, for the betterment, for the well-being of others. How do we fulfill the law of Christ? We share in one another's burdens. Now, now how do we do that? How do we share in one another's burdens? Two simple ideas. The first one is this. We have to get under the weight of it with someone. Picture a burden as a a literal physical weight on somebody, a burden. How do we share in the burden? We have to get under the weight of of it with somebody. We have to begin to understand. That word understand comes from the idea of standing under with someone else. We have to be willing to come and stand under their burden with them. What does this mean practically? Well, unfortunately, I think that this means listening to people so that we can begin to see what they see, hear what they're hearing, feel what they feel, Maybe stand or even walk in their shoes for a little bit. To, to understand, to, to, to stand under the burden with another, to, to listen, to feel, to empathize. Now, as you're doing this, you're beginning to share the burden with others. 
but you haven't actually done anything to, actually, to alleviate the burden. But, but the miracle of this is as you listen, as you feel with, the burden of the person becomes lighter. It, it becomes easier. Just, just because you're, you're standing under it with them. The, the burden's just the same, but, but you're standing under it with them. You know, in my own life, uh, with my daughter's cancer, by the way, she has a scan on Wednesday, which will be a huge, uh, important scan that we are obviously praying toward. But, you know, there were times where nobody could do anything for us. I mean, pray, yes, of course. But in the immediate, there's just times where nobody on earth could do anything for us. But, but there were those very few people in the world who, who, who really walked into our fear and our pain and, and, and listened and, and, and felt it with us and heard the way to the words that, that we were hearing from doctors. I, you know who did this best for me was Pastor G. I mean, when my daughter was re-diagnosed, we wept uncontrollably in each other's arms. He wept as hard as I was weeping. He was standing under the burden with me. He did nothing for me. There was nothing he could do about my daughter's cancer, but he felt it with me. And in those moments, it felt lighter. The second thing that we can do for people is we have to actually be willing to suffer with them. This goes beyond just listening and feeling now. This is a willingness to actually do something about the burden. We have to be willing to suffer with them. Did you know that the word compassion comes from the Latin to suffer with? To have compassion means to suffer with. It, it never means mere feeling. It, it denotes action. We, we have to be willing to actually shoulder and take on some of the burden. And there's no way that we'll ever, ever fulfill the law of Christ and bear one another's burdens if we're unwilling to suffer with one another. Maybe the burden is somebody's financial situation, so you, you're willing to take a hit financially for them. Maybe their burden is some unjust conflict, and so you're willing to step in and, and defend them, to be a defender of them in that difficulty, to step into the conflict and take some of the shots for them. Whatever it is, there's got to be this willingness to suffer. And I, you know, I got to tell you, man, this is, for me, this is like as deep as the water gets, because I'm, I'm just bad at these things. That's why I prayed at the beginning, I wish I was listening to the sermon and not not preaching it. Someone recently very close to me in my life said, you know, sometimes when I hear you preach, I, I think you're a hypocrite. And I, I get that, man, because when I'm preaching stuff like this, like I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pulling it off. But, but I also want you to know that I, I preach Scripture and Christ and not Britt Merrick. I hope, you, I hope you realize that. But, you know, this stuff for me, I... I'm just bad at it. Listen, suffer with you? I got my own flipping problems. I don't even want to deal with yours. <laughs> e even, even listening, I'm like, you, you want me to listen to your crap? I, I got more of my own. I don't want to listen to your crap. Oh, yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm getting paid. Okay, I'll listen. <laughs> I mean, that's... Man, I... This is deep water for me. Willingness to bear one another's burdens. Am I, am I willing to actually... Suffer when you're suffering and take the hit with you? And am I willing to listen enough, to empathize enough, to walk 
a few feet in your shoes and shoulder that burden. You see, these are, these are costly relational endeavors. Restoration, burden sharing. These things are the work of spiritual men and women. These are the outflow and the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. It's nothing that we can muster up. It is a spirit of God working in us. And, and, and what we begin to see is that true spirituality is intensely relational. True spirituality is, is not getting on a pillar in the desert and hiding from everybody. True spirituality is not merely maintaining a personal devotional life or reading another book. It's not abstaining from certain behaviors. True spirituality is not going to church, taking communion, lighting a candle, singing a song, whatever it is. And true spirituality is not a mystical experience or miraculous displays or power encounters as good as all those things are. You see, what Galatians offers us is an entirely different way of thinking about spiritual life. The fruit of the Spirit in us, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness, all of them, self-control, all of them relational. And this is what Paul means when he says, you who are spiritual, you who are godly, walking according to God's work, with God's Spirit, living out the fruit of His Spirit in our lives. And what we, what we have to realize in our view of the Holy Spirit is that the fruit of the Spirit is not meant to be for our private enjoyment. It's not for the furtherance of self-fulfillment. The fruit of the Spirit in our lives is for the public exercise of love. It is for the work of restoration and burden sharing. One author said, the life of the Spirit flourishes for the sake of others. And then the relational implications, and here's where we end, the relational implications of all of this, whether we, we walk in the flesh or we walk in the spirit, are profound. You, you must realize in all that we've learned about the gospel, the gospel does not render your behavior meaningless. In fact, God sees to it that our relational choices have consequences, far-reaching implications. Galatians chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 6, verse 7, says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. Stop right there. So if you're relationally functioning from a place of, I, I need to get my needs met, I need to further my agenda, I, I want to deal with my stuff. You're sowing to the flesh and, and you're going to reap accordingly. There's always going to be bad and sad consequences for that sort of relational living. This is the way that God has designed it to be. There are certain consequences to life in the flesh, to sin. Now, these consequences are mutually exclusive from forgiveness, we can have the total and complete forgiveness of God and still suffer under profound implications from what we've done. You may have committed adultery, cheated on your spouse. And if you go to God through Christ and the finished work of the cross, in repentance, he will forgive you. But you and many others will suffer those consequences for a long time. 
forgiveness of sins and the consequences of sins are mutually exclusive. When you cheated on your spouse, you may have contracted an STD. And you, you go to God looking for forgiveness and on the inside you are washed white as snow, but on the outside you wake up the next morning with that STD. You're reaping what you've sown. Now, God may choose to heal you of that. And I, I, I know several people in our church here who've been healed of STDs they've gotten during sexual immorality. God, God may totally heal you of that, but if he does that, that's called a miracle. Okay, a miracle is God reversing or superseding his preordained order to accomplish something else. And God's preordained order is you reap what you sow. There are consequences to sin and poor relational behavior. If God overrides that, it's a miracle. But generally speaking, if you sin against your body, you're going to reap poor health. If you sin against loved ones, you're going to reap broken relationships. If you live to satisfy your own sinful nature, as the text says, you will reap a harvest of trouble. This is the moral law of the universe. If we break it, we can be forgiven, but we do so at our own peril. And so what do we do? The second part of verse 8 says, but those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, you will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. How good does that sound? Relational harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those in the family of faith. We should do good to everyone and don't grow weary of doing good. You'll reap a harvest of blessing. You, you know what the gospel says? The gospel says no matter how much you are wronged, you can continue to do good because ultimate good was done for you on the cross of Christ. And then you know what the Spirit does? The Spirit comes and empowers us to do good relationally to everyone, especially the household of faith. The gospel says you can continue to be good because of Christ's ultimate good for you, and the Spirit in us empowers us to do so. Lord, we ask that that would be our lives. I ask that this would be my life, Lord. Forgive me for the times where I think I'm too important to help somebody. Forgive me for the times where I function from an inflated view of self and I provoke or where I'm jealous and I resent. Spirit of the living God, be poured out in new and full measure on us that we might be spiritual men and women. women. We need this, Lord, and it's got to be a work of you in us. Thank you that you never expect us to muster this up or get her done. Thank you, Lord, that it is your work in us. And we're, we're, we're here with open hearts saying, Lord, do your work in us for your glory. If you need any help at all today, prayer team is up here to my right and my left. Communion is here. You can come on the carpets. The Spirit of God is here. So let's pursue them. Mm -hmm.